You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, I want to say again, good morning and probably about the 498th person that has told you Happy New Year already. I want to be numbered among them, but I am delighted that it is January 2017. My name is Eric Barton and I'm the downtown campus pastor for Bethel. 18! Thank you for the interaction. This is church. Y'all know that you're not supposed to actually talk back, right? No, I'm kidding. Let me have it. But my name is Eric Barton, and uh, I know that because I'm wrong about the year, and I'm the guy in the sweater vest. So that pretty much tells you he must be the campus pastor. Right on. But I want to let you know of a couple things that are going on in the life of our church. We are delighted that you are here in 2018. I've realized how many checks I've now signed with 2017. Ha <laughs> ha! Joke's on them. But we are delighted that you are here in 2018. And so let me let you know some things that are happening. For starters, we are uh, about to kick off our women's Bible studies uh, this spring semester, and there will be some folks sitting out in the, in the foyer at some tables to help you get signed up, ladies, if that's something that you are interested in. And then secondly, we're making a very significant concerted push this month in January uh, to staff and sort of bolster all of the folks that are leading as volunteer ministry leaders in our children's area opportunities to teach the Word of God in community with children. There will be someone sitting out there in the foyer over these next few Sundays to get you engaged. If you're not serving any place else at Bethel, we would love for you to begin there. It is an excellent opportunity to be an active shepherd in the lives of some of our young people. And we say this all the time, our children, they are not the future of the church. They are our church now. So we want to give you that opportunity to serve and to lead in that capacity. And then finally, I get to be the one who bears some really good news. Uh, over the last really three months, we've been uh, giving periodic financial updates. As a church, it's sort of our privilege to be very candid, very transparent with all of our finances, uh, the, the resources that God has given us to steward. And you know, we kind of came through a challenging October and November because the scope of ministry at Bethel at all three campuses has significantly grown, as has our giving, but our giving hasn't kept pace with our growth. Well, we asked and the Lord provided through you. And so I just want to say that uh, in the month of December of 2017, which is the first month of our fiscal year, it is the largest month of giving that Bethel has ever had in her 35-year history. We've never done that before as a church, and so I am elated and I am delighted to get to say that in the month of December, uh, we were up 24% from where we were this time last year. In other words, the month of December, Bethel gave resources of $405,000. Never happened before in our 35-year history. Super exciting. Not only that, uh, we are up 23.5% over the same three-month period from last year. And we have 23 new first-time giving households over the last two months. So really encouraging. We are so thankful for what God is doing in our midst, in and through you. Now, having said that, we also want to remind you that this is a lifelong commitment to respond to God in giving 
through generous support of the church. January is typically our slowest month of the year, and so I want to encourage you to remain vigilant. Your giving is not a... Uh, it's not a commentary on how good the sermon was. Praise God. It is a reaction and a response to the grace of our generous God. So I just want to let you know those things are going on and, uh, and let you know that there are always opportunities to engage with our lives, with our serving, with our leading, and with our resources. And so we, as a church, over the last several months, have found ourselves in the midst of an opportunity to trust God in some very real and pressing practical ways. And so we've had to, of course, manage and pray and prepare our way through our finances in such a way that is honoring to God, while at the same time expressing faith that God has called us to do what we know he has called us to do. And so as I've prepared and prayed and thought through all of that, it occurred to me that this is the right time to ask God to calibrate my thinking and hopefully all of our thinking as we really sort of get into the warp and the woof and the rhythm of 2018. So all that that entails, I want to, uh, to let you know that this is sort of what I'm thinking for this passage that we're going to unpack here in just a moment. Here's our big idea. Here's the, the, the takeaway that I want us to all have as, a, as a, a, just a, a thought as we go into 2018. And it goes like this, very brief, lead with weakness. Lead with weakness. As I've taken the last couple of weeks to just think through the end of December and the beginning of January, man, where is an area of my life that I can be a blessing to my family, to my church, to my community, to my circle and sphere of friends? And I think it's when, by God's grace, led by His Spirit, I can lead with weakness. And let me explain and unpack all of that for you. And to do that, I would like for you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17. May be an odd text to start our calendar year, but Deuteronomy 17, one of my absolute favorite passages in the Old Testament, if not all of Scripture. It's so rich, it's so full. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, and I will read to the end of the chapter. This is God speaking to Moses, who is supposed to be conveying this and speaking this to the children of Israel. He says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, 
either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is God's word. This is God speaking to Moses, who's got the nation of Israel sort of hunkered down in the dirt. They've been in Egypt for several hundred years. And by God's grace, he has led them up out of captivity, out of bondage. And for 400 years while they were in Egypt, they did not know God. They were really sort of subject to and under the worship of all the Egyptian pantheon of gods, from Osiris and Ma'at and Anubis and all these others, and they don't know really who Yahweh is. Oh, they've heard him spoken of by the old people, but they themselves experientially don't really know. And so they go into the wilderness as God has led them up out of Egypt, and they didn't trust this God. They disobeyed him, and so they're forced to take laps for 40 years. Oh, they're not lost. They know exactly where they are, but God's saying you're not ready. And that entire generation, that entire age group of people who came up out of Egypt, who did not trust God, dies so that the new generation will go in. And it's into that context, into that setting that God has Moses hunker down and write down, hey, listen, in several hundred more years, these people, they will have multiplied. Their generations of generations, they're going to want to go into the land, and they're going to want to be just like everybody else. God sees this happening. Moses is writing this, mm, roughly, we don't know for sure, but somewhere around uh, 1500 B.C. Israel's going to get her first king somewhere around 1000 B.C. So God is telling Moses, hey, look, this is how it's going to go. They're going to go into the land, and I am the creator of the species. I know how their brains work. I know how their hearts have fallen. They're going to want to assimilate into the culture. What, what is culture? It's the same 3,000 years ago as it is today. Culture is very simply what most of the people do most of the time. That's all culture is. You, you can try to scientifically, sociologically nuance it. Listen, culture is very basically what most of the people do most of the time. Most of the people have an Instagram account, and so you have an Instagram account. Most people have a Facebook account, and so you have a Facebook account. It's just our culture these days, right? And so God knows that this group of people that he saved by grace, not because they earned it, are going to want to do what the rest of the people around them do. Now just imagine that for a moment. And when they do, sort of as a surprise, God says, I'm going to let them. They can, in fact, have a king set over them. Apparently, God's plan has always been for there to be a monarch, a ruler who will reign. It's always been his plan, but under his terms. So he says, here are the ingredients. Here's the recipe. Here's how it needs to go when they set a king over them. Now, let's just unpack this, beginning again in verse 14, and see what we can learn. Verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, make no mistake, whatever these people receive, it is because they have received it and not achieved it. Do I even need to make the quick application that whatever I have is because it has been given, not because I have earned anything. I have been given two arms and two legs and a, and a brain to, to do things, but it has been given. I have not earned it. 
when you move into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and oh, by the way, that land, <laughs> it's not just a patch of dirt someplace nestled in the Texas panhandle. It comes pre-equipped with vineyards. It comes pre-equipped with streams and livestock and houses and yards and little white picket fences. And this is what, the, what God is bringing these people into. And you possess it and dwell in it. So he understands that you're going to go in, then you're going to possess it. And then you're going to dwell in it. What does that mean? You're going to sit down and you're going to get comfy. And you're going to start looking around going, hey, I, I believe we need some doilies over there. And uh, we need to put in a quickie mart over there. And we need a king. Because everyone else has doilies. Everyone else has quickie marts. Everyone else has a king. That's what we need too. When that happens, he says, and you dwell in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Why, why would they want a king? Because see, at this point, God knows what they're going to go through. They're going to go through the conquest under Joshua. They're going to go through the period of the judges. And they still really don't know who they are. Now listen, this is convicting to me. Anybody who doesn't really know who they are will always try to look like everybody else. You can spot them a mile away. They still don't really know who they are. Yes, they wanted to be economically competitive like everybody else so that they could trade resources and grow financially. Sure. And yes, they also wanted a king who would be a champion, who would be a leader, who could defend them should they come under attack. But really, it's because they don't know who they are, and worse, they don't really know whose they are, and they certainly don't trust that that's enough. Boy, you ever been there? Where you forget who you really are, more importantly, whose you are, and then worse, that that's really enough, and so you find yourself reverting to your capacity to grasp. God says, I know that's what these people are going to do. He brought them out of the land, but he knew that they were not going to trust him. And so he tells Moses, this is what's going to happen. And so verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. I get to choose. Well, who chooses a king? The person who's actually sovereign. He's not an elected official from a particular party. God says, I am the sovereign one. I get to choose. You don't get to choose because if you choose, you'll choose the guy that's tall, dark, and handsome. You're going to call him Shaul or Saul, and he's going to be about as dumb as a broken hammer. This is what happens when you choose and I don't. I choose, God says. I will choose. And you must choose one from among your brothers, a member of the covenant community, not somebody from the outside. Well, that sounds strange. Why would anybody want that? In antiquity, nations would go and find the most capable well-resourced, best-connected guy they can. You're actually a German, but you're connected to those different families of Europe. We're going to bring you in and make you our king. See also, England is very common. They wanted people who were well-connected that would bolster their resources, bolster their military alliances. But God says, don't do that. I'm your king. I will choose. Do not choose for you a ruler from outside the covenant community. And you shall sit as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. A little repetition there just to make sure they understand this is for his chosen people. The king is supposed to represent God to the people. 
Do you know that? It's the job of the king. He is to represent God to the people. And so how can you bring in someone from outside the covenant community to represent God to the people if he's outside the covenant com community? If he's a Hittite or, a, or an Aramean or a Jebusite, he can't represent God accurately to the people, and God knows this. Now he's going to give a list of, uh, of some don't do's and some do's. Okay, so in verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. What's going on here? Well, we actually don't have recorded in Scripture anywhere where explicitly God says, you shall never go there again. But it's all through the Pentateuch. I don't want you back in Egypt. You're going this way. No forward. No forward, no forward. So there's no exact quote that we have recorded, but apparently God had spoken to Moses and said, you're never going back down to Egypt again. There is a tendency to want to return to that from which we have been rescued. And God said, uh-uh, we're going forward. You're not going back that way again. And I do not want you to acquire horses. What's the deal? Well, in antiquity, horses were sort of like Sherman tanks. It was the mechanized war machine. And you measured a king's wealth and his power by how many horses he has. So he says, I know what you're going to want to do. You're going to put a doily there and a quickie mart there, and you're going to want to start building stables and amassing horses for yourself so that you can show to yourselves and everybody else how strong you are. If that king has a thousand horses, whoo, that's a big darn deal because that means there are a thousand soldiers sitting on those horses, and each one of them has a, thousand, has a spear each, and so now you've got a thousand sharp points moving at high velocity. It's power, it's strength, and God says, no, nope, not you. You can have like a praying mantis and a horny toad. That's all you get. Because I'm your God. You don't need to try to amass for yourself a semblance of strength. Don't acquire for yourself many horses. And don't go back to Egypt to get them. Well, we have to understand a little bit more about what's going on here. Extra biblically, from history, we know that after the Exodus, Egypt becomes very weak militarily. Something to do with their whole army being drowned in the Red Sea. Kind of lays you low militarily for an age. And so all the other North African nations began to press in on them, both from the south and from the west. And even Persia started trying to come down and afflict Egypt. And so what was Egypt doing? Still very wealthy, still very uh, fertile in terms of agriculture. And so it was hiring out mercenaries to come in and fight on behalf of Egypt. God says, no, 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 no. I delivered you from those dudes. You will not go back and hire yourselves out and fight for them just because they got some shiny nickels. And what Egypt would do is they would pay their mercenary soldiers off in horses. Some of the finest horses of the day came out of Egypt. And God says, you're not going back there. Might seem attractive. Might seem like a good solution. Might seem like, oh, what a grace, what a blessing. Look what God has given us. He's given us Egypt to go get some horses. No, he said, don't go back there. Might seem like a good idea. It's not. Don't do that. Then verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Now, there are many passages that prohibit polygamy. And that's a good idea. I'm not even going to get into all the many reasons that's a terrific idea. But that's not what this text is talking about. There are passages that prohibit polygamy. This passage is talking about the king. 
the king is held to a higher standard. In the Old Testament, there's really not a whole lot of prohibition against polygamy, but there is for the king. He is held to the higher standard. The king is supposed to be the first law keeper, both publicly and privately. What were marriages in antiquity? Well, it's not just about having a bunch of baby makers. That's a different thing. Every marriage was a political allegiance. If you're a king over the hill and I marry your daughter, then now we have an agreement, we have a bond, and you're not as likely to attack me because I married to your daughter, and I'm not going to attack you because you're not my father-in-law, and we've shared a goat together, and then I'm going to marry that person over there and take his daughter, and we're going to be married. And so all these allegiances, all these relationships to where I am being blessed to the point that I no longer need God. Thanks for getting me out of Egypt, God. I'll take it from here. Now, none of us would ever, ever think that. None of us would ever live our lives that way. But I will, I will entrench myself in a group of people, forge relationships, have community, whatever, so much so that I don't ever really need to spend time with God. Do not acquire for yourself many wives. In other words, do not bring yourself into allegiances and relationships that are going to steal your heart away from me. Second half of verse 17. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Why? Because if I have all the resources, all of the means, what do I need God for? There's this text in the New Testament that says it's easier for a camel to take up sewing or something or other, I forget how it goes, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because a person of significant resources has no need of anything in his or her own mind. So don't acquire great masses. Now, this is not how most kings operate, even in our world today. If you're a king, this is what you're supposed to do. At least that's what our culture promotes. Well, verse 18, we've gone away from the do not do and the do not do. Now we move into what we're supposed to do. Verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Now, I, I got to confess, some of you I'm close enough friends with that you sort of know my, uh, my bent to the movies that I like to watch, usually about kings and soldiers and knights and fighting and sort of medieval chivalry and all this kind of like just warfare. And so if I can be totally transparent, part of me reads this passage, Deuteronomy 17, 18, and I wanted to say this. When the king takes his throne, you got to find him like a blind Chinese Shaolin monk to train him up. So he'll be like this incredible martial arts just master. Take off his shirt and he's ripped. And he's just flying around, smacking Hittites. Oh, yeah. Make sure that he gets the latest and greatest titanium alloy armor. Make sure he's got the sharpest sword that you can you can shave a duck on his sword. You got to make sure you get him on. Like this would be awesome. No, none of that stuff. Make sure he's got the biggest horse in the world. Make sure he travels all through Canaan and he smites his enemies beneath the hoof of his stallion. It's unfortunately not at all what Deuteronomy 17:18 says. Is all right, king, welcome. Here's the first thing you're going to do. Sit at this little desk, take out this feather, dip it in that inkwell, and start writing. 
not only start writing, but you're going to write God's word longhand in Hebrew, right to left. <laughs> and not only that, you've got some Levitical priest who doesn't want to be there either, and he's going to smack you with his yardstick when you get it wrong. It's good to be the king, right? This is the first thing you are to do. The very first thing is you are to write out your own copy of God's word because that's what a king does. We like to think that a king is all about conquest and riches and glory and fame and might and strength and honor. No, no. It's about writing out God's word and taking it in. The verse continues, verse 18, He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by, so there is accountability, even for the king by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him on Christmas and Easter, maybe on Mother's Day, and he shall read... No, that's actually a bad translation. Fear says that. It doesn't say that. It says in verse 19, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may, watch this, learn to fear the Lord his God. Isn't that fascinating? It has to be learned. It is not an innate, natural thing. It is a supernatural thing. It has to be cultivated. It has to be guided. It has to be directed. And it happens from God's word. A right view of God can only come from a regular intake of God's word. It's not a default thing like I just come into this world and I have a right recognition of God. I just naturally fear God. No, my nature is corrupt and fallen and it wants nothing to do with God. Because in my depravity, my corrupt nature, it wants itself to be God. And God knows this. And he says, King, you are to model for the rest of the people. You represent me to the people. Write this down. Verse 19, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. But the, the word order there is super important. The last bit is the doing. Knowing it, taking it in, that produces the doing. Really, really important. Verse 20, also the byproduct of taking this word is that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. But isn't that what kings do? Kings elevate themselves above other people and say, but I'm your, I'm your sovereign, I'm your king, I'm your lord. And God says, not my king. Not my king. No, he's not to be elevated. He's supposed to be the very first follower of me, the first servant of me. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, and he and his children in Israel. What a grace. God actually wants there to be a monarch who rightly represents and reflects him in the realm. Now, there was once a king named King David. And David began to get this, which is a perfect little segue to, to announce that this whole spring semester, all the way through the month of May, Lord willing, we're going to do a sermon series studying the life of David. We're going to spend all the spring semester unpacking the great, wonderful narratives of the life of David. And this David was also a psalmist. He was a warrior, but he was a poet. And at some point, there were some things that he did get right. He wrote in Psalm 119.11. He wrote, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He at least got that part right. 
And then we'll spend the rest of this semester studying David and all the things that we can learn about him and about our lives. Well, that was the prescription way back in Deuteronomy 17 for what the king of Israel was supposed to do. How did they do? Well, perhaps the greatest king of Israel ever certainly wasn't Saul, probably wasn't David, but the one who the nations would say was the greatest king of Israel was Solomon. All that he accomplished, the expanse of the borders of Israel. Let's see how he ends his days. If you would, got your Bible still, turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 9. There's a whole lot here written about Solomon. But 2 Chronicles chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. 2 Chronicles chapter 9, I'm sure you spend a whole lot of devotional time in 2 Chronicles, probably just Bibles worn out on those pages, I know, but see if you can follow along anyway. 2 Chronicles chapter 9 verse 25, and Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. <laughs> 4,000 Four thousand stalls for horses and chariots, and twelve thousand horsemen. Whoa! Hey, here's the thing that the king is not supposed to do. Check, did it. Okay. Whom he stationed in the chariot cities, plural. Some of you who've been to Israel, you've been there. Megiddo was one of his chariot cities. He had thousands of horses stored in Megiddo to show his strength, and with the king in Jerusalem. And he ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. What? And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And horses were imported for Solomon from, don't say it, don't say it, Oregon. Surely from Oregon. No, no. From Egypt. And from all lands. And the parallel passage to this is in Kings, where we're told that Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. If this was a Major League Baseball game, Solomon is batting a thousand for how not to be the king of Israel. Although, by all other accounts, He's absolutely killing it. He's rocking it. More money. He made silver like stone. Wow. And yet, he destroyed the monarchy, and it has been rent asunder for the last 3,000 years. Oh, it was reinstituted with the arrival of Messiah 2,000 years ago, but is yet waiting to be literally, physically re-implemented in Jerusalem one day when the king returns. Well, what are we to learn from all this? Well, I think what we see is what God wants for the king is for the king to lead with weakness, not to do all these other things that demonstrate and project strength. Most of us are pretty good at leading from our gifts, from our strengths, from our skills. But if we find ourselves in a situation in which if God doesn't come through, we're through, we will avoid those situations like a bug zapper. But this passage is telling us that we are to lead with strength, or with, sorry, lead with weakness. It's adopting and implementing a thought process. The persistent 
consistent, diligent, daily thinking that says, I'm taking this step, trusting that God has the floor in front of me. Taking this step, trusting that God has the floor in front of me. So let me just give you some implications and some applications of how I think this text impacts us here in 2018. Number one, this might be a little bit of a surprise. It goes like this. We are kings. You may not feel very kingly. We are kings. I know it's odd language because we're in church and we've been taught enough to know that there's only one king and he is God and I'm not he, right? Got it. I'm also not saying that we are kings and queens. I'm saying we are kings because the book of Galatians tells us that every believer, male or female, receives the privilege and the place as sons of God, even female believers. It's the most unique religion in all the world where even females are elevated to the station of firstborn males. And we are created in God's image. We are in Christ, indwelled by his Holy Spirit. We are kings. And it was God's plan all along, way back in Exodus 19. He intended that the nation of Israel would be a royal priesthood. Regal princes who were priests, but they did not trust God. They feared him, not respected him. They were terrified of him, and they said, we will not do that. And God said, fine, I'll do it another way. Enter the age of the church. And in the New Testament era, the book of 1 Peter says that we, those who are in Christ, are a royal priesthood, the intersection of the tribes of Judah and of Levi. We are priest kings, but more than that, Hebrews 7 comes along and says it's even better than that because we are in Christ, and Jesus Christ is in the line of Melchizedek, the original priest king. Don't you know who you are? You are Melchizedekian priest kings. Now that's a letter jacket you want to own. We are kings. Now, I don't mean we have realms where we reign and rule. Psst, not yet. We are kings and we are to think accordingly. Now, some of us merely live like kings with our opulence and our frequent Cinnabon punch cards that we have. This is not what I mean. I mean, don't you know who the text is telling us that we are? Not so that we elevate ourselves above anybody else. No, but when we think like the king of Deuteronomy 17, the king elevates everybody else and thinks in every capacity and nobility. So then, if we are kings, and I would argue that the text makes clear that we are, a couple things, some, uh, some quick applications. Number one goes like this. Don't obtain horses. That's what the text says. Don't obtain horses. Now, okay, obviously, this has nothing to do with keeping four-hooved, powerful steeds. Of course, that's fine. In fact, Winston Churchill was right when he said the outside of a horse is good for the inside of a man. Great line. There's something wonderful about being horseback and experiencing the outdoors on a horse. So I'm not saying you, you shouldn't own horses, those of you that do. God bless you. I love horses. What I am saying is that the error of thinking that the stuff that you have, that the rest of the people, what most of the people do most of the time, that they consider that a strength, it is not. How much time and energy do we expend trying to amass the stuff that the people around us say is strength? 
I'm going to argue in my case quite a lot. Don't obtain horses. It will always produce a haughtiness that demonstrates a lack of humility or spiritual maturity. Listen, horses are neutral, just like cars and houses and RVs and boats and pogo sticks and whatever else. But the moment we begin to think of those things as the stones of our thrones, <laughs> we've totally lost who God is. Number two, pretty obvious one as well, don't obtain wives. It's not a call to singleness, not really even a call to monogamy, although that's a good idea. It is a cautionary to do not think that you're infiltrating and you're integrating with various relationships excuses you from a relationship with the one and true living God. Some of us draw our identity so much from an app to see if someone finally liked my picture of my pasta or my pet, and if they didn't, then I've had a very bad day. It's trying to obtain wives where people's opinion of you matters so much, and you're trying to have allegiances and, and relationships that, that, that bolster you. And when you do that, when I do that, we begin to look down our noses at anybody else who doesn't have what we have. So don't, don't obtain wives. Next, and this is perhaps the most pertinent practical charge I can give for 2018. Think like a king. Think like a king. Now just imagine if everybody who called themselves a Christian thought like a king of Deuteronomy 17, who didn't think of themselves as a Christian and didn't give the first notice or tenth notice about what that might mean politically, but simply said, this is what it means to be a king. Our thinking has to be shaped by God's word. Did you see what a king is supposed to do? Write out God's word. Our thinking has to be shaped by God's word. You've heard me say this before, but I like to say it at least once a week or so. You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. You see, our thinking matters to God. Our thoughts have spiritual mass and weight. And we have the opportunity by God's spirit, by God's word, among God's people to reign in our thinking, to think like kings so that you will be arrogant and haughty. No, may it never be. Quite the opposite indeed. The king is to be the first law keeper publicly and privately. We are the ones who represent God to the people around us not in some stodgy Old Testament law kind of way, but no, this is what the character of God is because I am diligently thinking like a king. It's not a call to legalism or behavior modification. It's a reminder from God's word. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know whose you are? What we do and why we do it matters. We've been given God's spirit of nobility. I'm just going to tell you, my prayer for 2018 for this church is that we would be characterized as a people of nobility in 2018. That the people of this community and all the areas all over the globe where we do mission would say that church is a people of nobility. Regardless of how we vote, regardless of where we live or what we drive, that people is a people of nobility. And let me say this. Kings cannot obsess over wealth and the welfare of others at the exact same time. Nobody said it would be easy, but it is worth it. 
So I thought about this for me, and I thought about this this week for my own two sons that I'm diligently trying to raise. And I wrote this down. The path of least resistance, which is what all of the culture is trying to bombard us into, not being the worst people we could be, not being the best people we could be, but just being people. So we have a tendency to just follow the path of least resistance, but not if we think like kings. And this is what I wrote. The path of least resistance produces a prince of no resistance. It's not always easy to do the noble thing, but what a legacy I would leave for my sons and for their children after them. They would be a person who knows how to deal with resistance. Well, the kings of Israel quite obviously left us wanting more. We stand and we think, is this the best that the nation of Israel can produce? Is there no one else? But we're not left with no answer. Our Bibles come along in the New Testament and says, oh, there is someone else. One has come who is the perfect king. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, very briefly, if you've got your Bibles, I want to talk about, of course, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, we're told about this Jesus, that he is a champion willing to die in our place. We've already had communion to talk about that. That he is a king who cares. He's not just a sovereign. He is a king who cares about us. And not only that, he is a brother who is proud. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The fallen kings of Israel tried to elevate themselves above their brothers. But the king of kings, Jesus, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, even going to death on a cross, because that's what greatness looks like. Saying, verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing... <laughs> your praise. This is Jesus, who apparently, even now, in the gathering of the assembly in heaven, sings songs about us. It's foretold in Zephaniah 3.17, and Hebrews 2 says, it's happening. This king who cares, this champion who has died, this brother who is proud, he is the king. We're going to study the rest of the spring semester more and more and more about the king. But my prayer is that we would think like kings in 2018. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done. We thank you most of all for King Jesus. And may he ride on. Father, we thank you for loving us, for leading us, for guiding us, for guarding us. We pray, God, that you would... Redeem and sanctify our thoughts and our feelings. That we would be a people who read your word to think your thoughts after you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that is still trying to be the sovereign of their own life, would you by your spirit move irresistibly and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, that they would step out of darkness and into light. And for the rest of us, Father, would you jolt us out of our routines Challenge us to think like kings this year, and may you be rightly represented and reflected.
pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.